Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode 258, where we're coming at you live from a book tour event in Chicago. We are indeed. Well, we're not coming live here. We're coming live <laughs> in the actual episode. This was uh, an episode recorded in uh, the suburbs of Chicago. Yes, in uh, at LaGrange, I think LaGrange Park or LaGrange is the name of the suburb. It was the second last event yep. of the book tour in the States. So we recorded that in September. It was such a fun night. Anderson's Bookshop. Anderson's Bookstore LaGrange. So yeah. Anderson's has two or three stores around Chicago. But the cool thing about it is it has been, um, I think they're up to the sixth generation of family Working and running uh, Anderson's. Owning, yeah. So, I mean, go indie bookstores. I reckon. Like always, they've just supported us so well. We've met so many good, just wonderful book people yeah. from indie bookstores. And that's where we've gotten the most support and audiences have been fantastic. So, yeah, shop local, go indie when you can. Exactly. Thank you, Anderson's. We were also joined at this event with uh, Source Books because they're local to the area. Yeah, so Chicago is my, my American publisher. Yep. So I actually finally got to meet the team who helped me bring Put the book together. The book together. Yeah. Um, I got to meet Grace, my editor. I got to meet Liz, who was my publicist, mm-hmm. Ashlyn and Lizzie. Lizzie. Yeah. So to, ha- to meet that team of women was phenomenal because they've been so supportive. There's no way we could have done this book <laughs> tour without them, quite literally. So that was awesome. We were also joined by a wonderful audience. We were. I, I like um, events where they have to bring out more chairs. <laughs> that was one yeah, of that's always the, good. People sitting on the floor and standing at the back, that made me very happy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the event provided a good chance afterwards. We went out for slow old fashions. We did. And, yeah, just to connect with people after the event, which was really nice, something that we've been wanting to do. Yeah. And, yeah, the event provided that opportunity. So during the event, someone you'll hear um, during the Q&A session, someone asked, what's next for us? And while we don't know what's next for no. us, we're still kind of in the thick of this. One of the things that at almost every event we've done over the past three months, people bring to our attention is this desire to meet like-minded people, yeah. to develop a community of people who we can have conversations with about this stuff with so the event the after party of this particular event gave us a chance to do that and man it was so lovely it was so lovely just to yeah to sit and chat yeah yeah it was wonderful so we didn't record that obviously but although that would have been interesting it would have been right. interesting noisy but interesting yeah and before we get into the recording i just want to give you a heads up canadian listeners it's happening we've got a handful of canadian dates for the book tour and just head over to slowyourhome.com slash events for that. But Winnipeg, uh, Vancouver, and Calgary. Calgary. Toronto has already happened by the time this comes out. But uh, those three cities, possibly a couple more to be announced. But we will definitely be hitting your lovely cities over the next couple of weeks. So I cannot wait to see you out there. I feel like it's like a, a homecoming almost. We started out on Vancouver Island with Kate. Flanders. Oh yeah, yeah. That was the first of the book tour, and then we're rounding things out in uh, in in probably Alberta. So Canada is literally bookending the tour. It is. 
It is indeed. All right. So, in the meantime, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Oh, actually, one thing that I know I mentioned a few weeks ago. If you've been listening to the podcast for a long time, then you're across our story. You know, you've probably heard it in some capacity or another. But at these events, there's people in the audience who know nothing about slow living. They know nothing about me or why I've written a book. So I always feel like I need to preempt these kind of these kind of episodes by telling you that there's going to be things in here that you know. But I think that we do a really good job of making every single event different. Well, you do. You you've been obsessed with that. I just I just want to give people something interesting, and I want. And I think it's you, like just wanting to always provide something different no matter where you are so of course every event is going to be different but uh yeah brooke goes out of you go out of your way sometimes to to ensure that which i appreciate and i think the audience does as well so anyway with that said i hope you enjoy our chat at anderson's Welcome to the Slow Home Podcast, episode reality. Um, so what we're going to start off by doing is just show sort of a, just people can show their hands. Who's finding it difficult? Who's finding life pretty difficult in today's age? And it can be anything. Yeah, same. <laughs> All right, can I have some brave souls just to call out what they're finding difficult in their life at the moment? Stretched. Yeah, right. feel stretched. Our government. Yeah. <laughs> That's been a really common answer. <laughs> Always within the top three. Yeah. Any others? My child's dress. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, children and... Uh, falling asleep. Yeah. You find it falling, falling, it falling hard asleep. To fall. Falling asleep, too many thoughts going on. Right. Yeah. 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 I feel like my brain has too many tabs open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. We jump from one to the next to the next. Um, and other common answers are just the news cycle, like the 24-hour news cycle. Trying to find a balance between staying informed and staying sane <laughs> is something that people are really mm. struggling with at the moment. Um, email, work in general, carrying our offices around in our pockets. And all of these things add up to feeling like life is too much. It stretches us. We're overstretched. We're overcommitted. We're overwhelmed. We're exhausted. And what I've discovered over the past number of years is that it doesn't actually have to be that way. And that's essentially why I wrote Slow. Because my story was one of that. I was stretched, I was overwhelmed, I was constantly stressed and riddled with anxiety. Uh, on the face of it, my life looked really good. I had a lovely husband, who I still have. <laughs> I had a baby girl, and I was pregnant with our second baby. I was running a business, a jewelry label from the studio in our backyard. We had maybe two years previously moved from the city in Sydney to the Blue Mountains. We were renovating. We'd gone on an overseas holiday. Life looked good and I was miserable. I couldn't find joy in any of it uh, because on top of all of those things, the abundance that we had in life, I also had, we had crushing debt. We had weekends booked out for months. Mm -hmm. I didn't sleep. Ben would I get didn't up. see the kids. No, you would get up at five in the morning, get home at eight at night, mm. Monday to Friday, we wouldn't see each other. Our relationship was terrible. We didn't communicate. And our house was full of stuff. This stuff that I thought I should own 
in order to fit with this narrative of being successful. And we were completely overwhelmed. Mm. Um, so that's when, unsurprisingly, probably, I was diagnosed with postnatal depression after our second baby was born. My mental health, looking back, it was not good for many years, but uh, after our son was born, it took a very steep decline um, until one day, I remember looking at my reflection in the mirror and I would, I was staring at myself saying over and over again out loud, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And that was thankfully <laughs> the day that um, this little voice in the back of my head said, hey, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be like this. Because I thought truly that to be an adult, to be a parent up until this point was to be <coughs> miserable. <laughs> I didn't know any different. And that was the moment that I called Ben and I said really difficult words out loud. I said, I'm not okay. And I was someone who had built up this identity of always being okay, always doing, always trying to achieve. And to say that, to admit that was really tough. Because mm. we'd had difficult conversations before, obviously, living that sort of life, you do tend to have difficult conversations. But that phone call, that was like no other I've ever heard before. And I, there was a definitive change in Brooke during that phone call and I just knew from that point on that, yeah, Brooke really isn't okay. This is not just a, a bad day or a mm. bad week. This was Brooke's bad life. Right, mm. and I didn't, I didn't know any different. Mm. Um, so as part of that whole process, I called Ben, he very wisely called my mum <laughs> and um, he made his way home but she was up there in 15 minutes and didn't believe me when I said, oh, no, I'm okay. Honestly, I'm fine. I just had a bad moment. <clears throat> you can go away now. Uh, but she didn't go away, and I, I got the help that I needed really fortunately very quickly. Um, I got to see my doctor, and I spent the next two years seeing a psychiatrist every week, uh, and she put me on antidepressants and got to know me very well <laughs> over the subsequent couple of years. But it was probably three months into that whole process of, of recovery that, and a, a pattern started to emerge and I would go to my sessions with her and I would spend the first 10 minutes pretending like there was nothing wrong with me. <laughs> Everyone else was crazy. It wasn't me. <laughs> I was completely fine. And then I'd spend the next 45 minutes complaining to her about how unhappy I was and how um, exhausted I was and how stretched I felt. And it's because I had built this identity again of being the person who did, who achieved, who was always striving for the next thing. And I'd convince myself that once I got that next thing, I'd be happy. Mm. And then I'd get that next thing. And hiding behind that next thing was the next thing. And I thought, well, this must be it. Once I get to this, then I'll be happy. And I think part of that process, the first few months, was me understanding that that had been the pattern that I'd, I'd created. And one day, my psychiatrist just sat back and let me finish my complaining. And um, she looked at me and she said, well, have you ever considered doing less? I said, no. <laughs> How is offensive. That, is, that, is, that, is that an option? And I was offended. Mm. I was genuinely mm. offended because I heard her say, you can't cope. You're deficient. You can't deal with modern life. There's something wrong with you. Of course, that's not what she was saying, but that's how it felt. Um, and I took my, bru my bruised ego and my hurt feelings home, but I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about this idea of, is it actually possible to slow down, to do less in the world we live in? And one night I, I couldn't sleep, so I got up and I Googled it. <laughs> Googled, how do I simplify my life? And I discovered the first website I came across was a website called Zen Habits by Leo Babauta. And he writes about minimalism. 
And the first time I discovered this idea of minimalism too. So he's, he basically was saying he had decluttered his home, they lived with a lot less stuff, and everything was better as a result. Like not only did he have less stuff and less cleaning to do, but they had more money, their relationships were stronger, their health was better. Everything that mattered was improved by letting go of this stuff. So I thought, well, I'm in. <laughs> so what did you do next? So you, you obviously saw minimalism as, okay, this is a way out. Mm. So how did that, what, what kick-started it? Um, what was the first sort of stepping stone? Right. Well, the first stepping stone for me attempting to be a minimalist was, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it as fast as possible <laughs> and I'm going to be the best minimalist in the world. So we had a two-car garage in mm. our backyard yeah. that had been full of boxes for two years since we'd moved. We'd never parked a car in there because uh, it was full of stuff. So I thought, well, that's got to be the best place to, be, to, to become a minimalist uh, and it will take a weekend and my life will be fixed and yeah. everything will be great and, you know, problem solved. So we went out one Saturday morning. I roped Ben in and we started unpacking these boxes uh, and we put them in piles, the contents of these boxes in piles because that's what a good minimalist does. That's what all the internet articles <coughs> said to do. So I had a pile of things to keep and one to donate, one to give to friends and you know one over here that was going to be very small that was my just-in-case pile for the things that I had forgotten that I owned but now that I saw them I probably should keep them. Uh, and we started sorting through boxes and shuffling stuff around and after about two hours I realized that almost everything was in the just-in-case pile but all the rest of the piles had just like merged. It was just a mound into this of stuff. Yeah. Great unholy yeah. mess of crap in our in our garage. And I thought, great job done. <laughs> <laughs> but we we gave up. Yeah. We looked at it and thought this was so overwhelming. Mm. We hadn't actually made any decisions. We hadn't made any choices. We hadn't done anything except make a mess. So we walked out. And we rolled the doors down, and we left it for a year. It was about twelve months. <laughs> it was a long time, yeah. and that was when I realised that maybe there's some power to this decluttering, but I needed to go to the opposite end of the spectrum. So um, I decluttered my purse instead and it took five minutes and I finished it. I removed, you know, a stack of receipts and I felt better. So I thought, well, what, what else can I do? Like, what else is that size? What is this bite-sized, you know, chunk of a task that can help me to declutter? And it was things like spending five minutes going through uh, the junk drawer in the kitchen removing dried up pens, empty shampoo bottles in the shower, just all of these really ridiculously small steps that over time started to make a difference. And over a year, I decluttered 25,000 things from our house just doing that. But the interesting thing was, I initially thought that it would simply be about creating more physical space in our house. But after about six months, I realized that not only was I letting go of this stuff, but I was letting go of all of the mental clutter that was, that was attached to the stuff as well. Because I wasn't just letting go of the genes that didn't fit me anymore after having our babies. I was letting go of the feeling of having failed at getting, like, getting my baby, my pre-baby body back. Mm. You know, and that took headspace. I wasn't just letting go of uh, the jewelry stuff from, from my jewelry business. I was letting go of the feeling of regret at having closed the business down. I wasn't just letting go of you know, toys that the kids never played with. I was letting go of the expectation of what it should look like to have a room full of toys and what kind of toys will be the most developmentally appropriate for our kids and, you know, all of this stuff that comes with our stuff. 
I was letting go of that as well. And you came home one day. Yeah, I came home one day. <laughs> and so this was, this was a gradual thing. So it just happened sort of one drawer at a time almost and one room at a time. And I came home one day and I just, I just looked at the house and I went, but there's nothing here anymore <laughs> except my stuff. <laughs> and and I, I remember opening the wardrobe and my clothes were, you know, 80% of this wardrobe now. And I went, I've got to get on board with this because <laughs> I'm embarrassed. But, but honestly, at the start, it felt like a drastic change, but it wasn't because it was so gradual. But I, I asked you whether you joined a cult, like, because <laughs> it was so opposite to how we were living. And at the end of the day, it was anything that was helping Brooke get through it, I would support. Mm. So while it was very foreign and I didn't read anything, so I'm just, I'm just seeing all this from Brooke, you know, in practice. And so it just it sort of convinced me and I had to see it for my very own eyes to be able to then... Um, you know, jump on board and, mm. and, and start decluttering as well. Yeah, you did. <laughs> it took a while, but you... Um, yeah. I think it was enjoying the benefits, which were not just more space. They were mm. more time. They were, mm. um, our weekends started to feel a little more spacious. We had, uh, we had time in the, after, in the evenings where we weren't yelling at each other and competing about who had the worst day. It was a gradual removal of stuff but also mental clutter mm. and it was interesting because then I, I felt like after about 12 months of these changes I thought well what's next what what's next in the how to be a good minimalist to-do list and I, I went back to the internet and I, I was looking for the next thing and I read about yoga and I read about meditation and I read about drinking green smoothies and um, I think I <laughs> started thinking about training for a half marathon at one point and <laughs> I was looking for the next step uh, and none of those changes stuck. And I realized now that the reason they weren't sticking was because I didn't know why I was making them other than mm. someone on the internet told me to. So we went to Canada in 2014 for a Christmas holiday. And as an Australian, a white Christmas is really exotic. So we went to the Rocky Mountains and sort of soaked up that whole white Christmas vibe. Mm. But I was in a bookshop there and walked past this small book of writing prompts, creative writing prompts called 642 Tiny Things to Write About. And uh, I picked it up. I thought that sounds like something fun that you know I might be able to do next year. And I took it home with me, opened up the book one day and flicked through. And, and randomly, the first page that I opened up to said, write your eulogy in three sentences, which is not what I was expecting when I picked up that book. I was 31 at the time and I had given no thought to uh, my death which I don't think is unusual. But what I had realized over the past couple of years, the previous couple of years of simplifying and removing layers and layers and layers of stuff and busyness and expectation from my life was that I didn't actually know who I was. So not only had I not thought of my death, but I'd realized I had not been thinking about the way I was living my life either. For many years, I had just been doing the next thing, like doing the next thing that I felt like I should do. You know, we got married, so we thought we should buy a house. So we bought a house, and then we thought we should fill that house with stuff. And then we thought when we, have, when we started our family, what are the things that they should have? Mm. And it was just this cycle of doing what was expected. Uh, so this, this question of a eulogy was really confronting because not only was it asking me about what I wanted people to say about me, but essentially what's asking is who do I want to be? 
who do I want, what do I want my life to look like for the, God willing, 60 years from here to the end of it. So I sat down and I, I forced myself to write it, even though it was terrifying. Uh, and I, I, I made it. <laughs> I read. I, I, I got it down to four sentences. I, I couldn't quite do three. But I'd like to read it tonight. This is what I wrote. Uh, quick to laugh, creative, compassionate, with a wicked sense of humour. Mum was never without a new plan or adventure on the horizon. She made one hell of an old-fashioned. She was spontaneous, loyal, introspective, and believed wholeheartedly that we all have a responsibility to leave the world a better place than we found it. Mum, we will miss you always. Thank you for our roots, but thank you even more for our wings. <clears throat> and for the first time, after I, I read those words back, I knew why I'd been making these changes, because I wanted that to be the person my kids talked about when I was gone. And it felt great to know why I'd been making these changes and to finally have a reason and a foundation on which I could make decisions. But um, that, that positive feeling was really quickly followed up by the question of, am I living a life right now that if I continued along the way that I am, my kids would say that about me? And the answer was no. Because I knew what my priorities were, um, but I wasn't living like it. And that was a really humbling moment for me because I, again, knew what my priorities were, but I'd, I wasn't living like it because the things that I would spend my time on, my energy, my headspace, were things of no importance, things that did not come anywhere near my brain when I was thinking about my eulogy. I mean, things like bank balance and the size of my paws, for example, mm -hmm. um, my kids' extracurricular activities, the gene, like smallest gene size that I've ever fit in. I mean, these things were not anywhere near a priority in my life. And yet they got time and energy that the things that were a priority and are a priority didn't get. And I realized that the way we spend our moments, the way we spend our days is what our lives add up to. And I know that sounds commonsensical now, but it was the first time I'd ever really thought about it. And to me, that was when I realized that that's what mindfulness is about. It's not about uh, meditating for hours a day or, um, you know, walking around in some kind of Zen bliss. Uh, it's about paying attention to what we're doing with our time and our energy and our moments. And really, I think that was kind of the moment, wasn't it? So w w is that the moment that then sort of inspired slow? Um, yeah, after, after a... A period because that's when I realized that there were so many other things that I needed to simplify in life in order to make space and time for the things that matter. So what so what are the what were they? What was the next thing? So first of all, I mean I decluttered that bit I felt like I had on lockdown. Yeah. But I was also very good at recluttering. <laughs> <laughs> Making space in our home and going, look at all this space. I've done such a great job. I deserve new things. <laughs> and filling the space in again. And that was something that I really needed to dig quite deep into and figure out why I was doing that. Where did that um, desire to consume come from? And it was, I mean, I, I've written a whole book about it. So <laughs> yeah, I can't really kind of summarize it, but it was about the, um, the media that I was consuming and all of these social medias and magazines and television shows and everything that I was watching that was telling me what I should be aiming for, what trends I should be following, why what I was wearing was embarrassing, you know, and why it said something about me as a person. 
So first of all, I really just had to let go of that. And I completely, um, I, I guess, renegotiated the inputs that I allowed into my life, which meant like things like no commercial TV and culling time on social media and um, all that sort of stuff, which then made me realize that a huge part of needing to slow down is also needing to renegotiate what my relationship with technology looks like. Because I think tech is a huge mm. boundary to many of us spending our lives in the way we want. And I realize there's an entire industry of people whose job it is, that's fair enough, I mean, it's a job, uh, is to keep us on our phones, to keep us engaged headfirst into whatever app it is that we're using. And I'm not going to demonize technology because there's a lot of good things about it, but that was the realization for me, that there is this entire industry that is benefiting from the fracturing of our attention. Hmm. And while they're benefiting, our families, our relationship, ourselves, they are not benefiting. They are being fractured as well. So it was really that plus mindfulness. And hmm. I, I kind of, <laughs> I hated using the term so much in the book because it's become this buzzword that needs to look a particular way. But essentially, it's about paying attention. Essentially, it's about creating opportunity every day to just pay attention. And really, I mean, that's kind of the, the basis of it. And while the decluttering was huge at the start, like that was very big for us, it wasn't until you wrote that eulogy that I think things really changed mm -hmm. for real, yep. I will say. Um, we're going to open it up for questions very shortly because this will be a hostful podcast. So get ready. Um, <laughs> but first, I know everyone is waiting with bated breath. They want to know what happened to the garage. <laughs> yeah, we'll give you some closure on the garage. Um, so after about a year of pretending it didn't exist, um, I realised actually that it had, uh, initially it felt like a failing, that whole place. Hi. <laughs> it, it, that, that huge space in our backyard <laughs> felt like, a failure because it was the, the symbol of wasted opportunities, wasted time, wasted money, regrets, all of these things that I wasn't able to, to clear from my life. And um, I'd spent sort of the, the 12 months <laughs> from trying to mm -hmm. deal with the garage to, to then at practicing what decluttering looked like and asking the questions of do I want this, do I need it, why do I have 10 of it, where does it need to go? Um, and, and gradually learning how to let go of stuff. And I realized in that 12 months that had passed that not only was I better at decluttering, but also I hadn't missed a single thing that we had let go of. There was not one thing that I had regretted. There was most of it I couldn't even remember, to be perfectly honest. So when I realized that, this garage became an opportunity to completely turn the tables. And um, I went out one day, or we went out one, one Saturday morning again, and within the space of a weekend, we'd cleared it out completely. Everything was gone. Um, we gave the vast majority of it away, threw some away and recycled. And, but Sunday afternoon, we were staring at the garage, which had just become this huge empty space. And we realized that we didn't even want the garage anymore. So we sold it to our neighbors. <laughs> and he came and he pulled it down and shipped it off to the country. And um, hopefully he's using it for something better than storing boxes. But <laughs> we ripped up the... Uh, slab. Concrete slab, yeah. and in its place we put a veggie garden, a huge veggie garden, and we put a trampoline in for the kids. And still, after all of the work that we have done over the past few years to change the way we're living, 
I have yet to find anything that better symbolizes what we stood to gain by letting go than that garage because it had previously been this space of heaviness and regret and waste uh, and we had shifted it to life and play and family and uh, growth, you know, and, and really it's that question of what do we stand to gain by letting go that I want people to come away from tonight with, really. Absolutely. We also sold the house as well <laughs> we after did. that. That's true. So to take it one step further. Um, I'd, love, I'd love to open up for questions. So if anyone's got a question, just raise their hand and we'll... Yes. What are you guys working on next? Finishing the tour? <laughs> Good question though. It's, it's been really interesting coming out and talking to people and figuring out what people want more of uh, in this whole idea of slowing down. And it's people. People want connection. Mm and community and they want to know that there's like-minded people living nearby and they want to be able to have conversations and not feel like the token weirdo in you know in amongst their friends or their family so I don't I have no idea what it's going to look like but something along those lines I want to connect people because I really think that decluttering is great like living mindfully is wonderful but our world needs more connection we need more people who have this the capacity to care mm. and to connect and to empathize and for me, that's, I often say that I really think that slow living will change the world, but it's not because everyone's house will look like an Instagram account. It will be because people will have space to care about things that are important. So, I don't know, something... something we've, I mean, we've driven 17,000 miles <laughs> and being in the front seat with Brooke and driving, we've thought about a lot <laughs> and we're thinking about... And a lot of things, you know, we're, we're thinking through, but we wanted to, so we want to do more with people and whether that's, you know, do more online retreats, whether that's shifting the way we do our podcasts, we just, there's a lot um, that we're thinking about and partnering with a lot of people as well, but we certainly are not going to stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? Um, when before you did this, were you in like some kind of uh, high-powered careers or busy career type things that was also part of it, or it was just that you had a lot of clutter? Um, no. So I ran my own jewelry business, and it was not certainly not high-powered or profitable. But in saying that, Brooks had so many jobs. I mean, oh. she's done so many jobs, and I would say a few of them have been high-powered. I mean, she sold documentaries in China at one stage. Like it's just. It's crazy what the, the life that you've lived and how you've changed. So Right. Yeah. But it was it was busy. I mean, I was wearing all of the hats mm -hmm. and I had taken it upon myself to try and build this empire as, you know, like a mum who was also an entrepreneur right. and I felt like the expectation there mm. was immense, really. If I had carved this out as the thing I wanted to do, then um, I needed to do it incredibly well and needed to keep up and com compete with these success stories I was seeing which has really informed my thoughts a lot on the idea of work-life balance, which I think is a complete myth. It's really damaging to people, I think. Particularly, I think, women who are trying to have it all uh, because we've been taught for many years that we, we can have it all. I don't think anyone can, men or women. Depend, you know, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. No one can have it all. But it's all about tilting. It's all about long-term balance, but certainly not balance in the daily because I think that, uh, there may be one magical day a year where we somehow give everything the attention, the energy that it, it deserves in the one day. But it's more about how do I feel about my life over six months or 12 months. Um, but Ben, on the other hand, up until 
three years ago, two and a half years ago, mm. was working in corporate, mm. and the hours were immense. Mm. They were really pressure-filled. Yeah. So one of the obviously I, practicing Brooke, practicing slow living, I finally thought, wow, this is. I'm going to, you know, work myself into an early grave. That's how I felt because we were so different to right. where we were, and I thought, oh, I've got to, I've got to get on board with this. So I you know, took some steps and they were long-term steps about, oh, I want to start my own business and this is what I want to do. And it took, yeah, it took a good three years for that to actually happen and a further year to be doing it on the road. You know, to be able to do what we do right now a couple of years ago just wouldn't have happened. Well, we had a conversation about it about two years ago, three years mm. ago. And I said, what, like, what do you think about this for a crazy idea? And he's like, you're right, it is crazy. Mm. It's never going to happen. Um, and it's been a really gradual mm. shift as well. Uh, but I, it's interesting. I think a lot of people hear about slow living and they think, well, that's nice, but I work corporate, I work a really high-pressure job. It's just not going to fit. And that's why I think that not only is it slow living because we, we're trying to slow down a little, but it's also because the changes required um, are slow. You know, it takes a long time yeah. to shift the way we live and the way we work. And it's not perfect. And none of us live in vacuums. Um, we, there's compromise. There's other people's requirements and desires um, to, to always flow around as well. Um, but that's not, a, that's not enough of a reason to not make any changes. So, yeah. You're welcome. That's a two-part question. I've listened to some of your podcasts for about a year or so, but I haven't heard this now, thing. Um, one, how did you meet? And then also, two, what would you tell yourself if you were to go back to that moment Knowing that you know now, what would you say to yourself then? Mm. Yeah, great question. Because I love what you said about how your relationship got stronger and your life has become more cohesive together. Mm. Right. Um, after, after a while, um, it got stronger. But I think there was a period in the middle there where, and we spoke about it on a more recent podcast com- uh, episode, where you said you, you looked at me and realized that I wasn't the same person that you married mm. and that wasn't just part of my recovery from depression that was who I was and now. that's who I was and who you know I, my identity was tied up in my job right. absolutely in my job and that was everything I felt like I had to you know earn so much money and keep earning money and I wanted to be the CEO of a company like all that sort of stuff but then I thought you know it takes <laughs> and the funny thing is this is so funny I mean Brooke's been writing about this for eight years we've been podcasting for three or so but it was early on and we were sitting down and watching a program on um, Australian TV what was it called um, Frantic Family Rescue Frantic Family yeah. Rescue <laughs> but no, it wasn't like a commercial. It was like a Channel Two government-run thing, and it was it was well done. It, was it sounds great. very trashy. Um, and we were sitting down, and Carl Honoré. I don't know whether anyone's heard of Carl Honoré, but he's there, and he's working with these families about slowing down. It's all about technology and getting off screens and all the rest of it. I'm sitting there, and I I turn to Brooke, and I say, "Geez, that's a good idea, isn't it?" <laughs> and she almost sort of lost it. Um, it took it took me so long to get on board. I mean. I, I basically had a panic attack on the train on the way to work one day. I had to get off. felt like I was having a heart attack. Because we were, we, we were going in totally different directions. A very good friend of mine said, recognised and said, you do realise that you guys now are, you know, Brooks over here and you're way over here. And, I, it, you know, there were some pretty hard and difficult conversations. Mm. But, you know, it's all about priorities and working out what's your why. 
Um, but go, to go back to the first question, don't know whether I've answered that one properly yet, but we'll get there. First question is, we, we, we met, <laughs> this is funny, we met in when we were in year six, six. so as 12-year-olds. Uh, I was captain of a school next door to Brooks. So we weren't at the same school. Yeah. Anyway, I came over to Brooks school one, I had to say a speech or something. I got this photo of Brooke and I talking and Brooks there and I'm a 12-year-old, Brooke's a 12-year-old and I'm looking up. <laughs> so that photo was on our, um, our wedding uh, booklet. Uh, so we've known each other for a, a while, but we didn't really get to know one another until we were at university and that's sort of where we, yeah, the first, yeah. Year, of, first year of university, we, yeah. we got talking. Yeah. We, we did get talking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But in terms of advice, I'd like to, I would love to tell younger Brooke and Ben, and then I'd like to force them to actually believe it and listen, um, that diverging from the path well-trodden is worth it and it's fun and you get to create bonds that you don't otherwise get to, when you're just and we did it for many years. We just sat in the middle of the stream and we let it take us. And that was all our friends. That was everyone we knew did the same thing. But by starting to have conversations or exploring different ways of living or different ideas and opening ourselves up to that, we discovered that not everyone sits in the middle of the stream. Not everyone is just doing the next thing. There are, there's a whole world of really fascinating people doing really fascinating things and I just wish I had have had the confidence in myself to do that from a young age because I think I wanted to but I like most kids I, I didn't think much of myself so I just did what I thought would make people happy but there is like there's a lot to learn and gain by living a life out of the ordinary and I don't mean like an extraordinary kind of life but I mean just living out of the ordinary hmm. yeah mine's very similar it would be take risks and it's okay to make mistakes. Right. Yeah. Which is very much aligned to what you were saying. Yeah. It's a really good question. Yeah. Thank you. Um, demographically, how does your message benefit someone who grew up with nothing as opposed to people who had everything handed to them, they never had to work for anything, everything just came easy. And I'm not talking about, you know, where they just woke up and everything was there. I mean, those two groups are are definitely a divide in this country still, as opposed to what color our skin is. I mean, how does that message still? Yeah. It's a really interesting question of, and essentially it's one of privilege, right? Mm. Um, and it's they, there's absolutely a relationship there. And I feel like there are people who have been given opportunity, and that's what I think privilege essentially is, it's opportunity to have more than others. And what I think people are now discovering is that that's not, that's not always going to lead to happiness or contentment. And I think for me, it's really important that people who have that, those privileges recognize them, first of all, but then use this idea of slow living to create a world that is more equitable. You use that opportunity, use that privilege to actually turn around and make an impact on the world, to make a more positive impact on the world. I think it's... Not make yourself more Exactly. Right. And that's the thing that I think has been lost in the whole wellness movement, in 
even minimalism or simplicity mm. or slow living, it has become another way of keeping up with the Joneses. It's just a different set of Joneses. They might have less stuff, but it's expensive stuff. Um, and it, it drives me mad because I truly think mm. that this whole idea can change the world. It, it, and it can change the world by initially just changing ourselves, changing the fact that we turn up for people and have conversations that are difficult, that are out of our comfort zone, that but they matter because you turn up and you look at someone and you listen and you give them your undivided attention. And that creates bonds between people, which then can, and I'm talking, like it's slow, it's gradual, but that's the power of it. It's in changing the makeup of our family, of our neighborhood, of our communities, and gradually um, seeing that shift. And, you know, it's been really encouraging for me to come to the States and have conversations with people who have come to the same realization. They're like, I don't want any part in something that is going to lift me up and make my life better if it's keeping my head, my foot on someone else's head, you know? Mm. And uh, truly, and I think that the thing that has been so incredible is to meet people who are do doing just that. They've found space and time and energy in their lives and they're not just turning it into a three hour a day yoga practice, they're turning around and they're creating programs in the community. They're volunteering at schools. They're just turning up. They're calling their mum more, you yeah. know, and they're, they're creating stronger relationships. It's been, it's been amazing. Like, we, we came here with some preconceived ideas, okay? <laughs> it's hard not to. Right? Yeah. And, but we have been blown away. I mean, I don't know whether it's the community that, and, the, and the audience that we've had who have been wonderful, but uh, we've just been digging down the surface of a few different things. Uh, and... People like the grassroots level yep. here and, and what's happening is just amazing. Like, blown away with it at, at home. We're hopeless with that stuff. Right. And I don't know whether that's, you know, the response to what's happening at, at the global level, but it's just been, we've been really, you know, amazed. Yeah. Yeah. It, truly, I've been, yeah, go for it. We still need to get out of our comfort zones where, you know, you may live in a certain area, but you want to do something for a community, that's great. But you won't get out of your comfort zone and go to a different where you don't feel comfortable and figure, well, I don't want to help them because I don't feel comfortable being mm. in that area. Right. We still haven't gotten to that point. We, we still some, we see some people that will take the first step and go out and be in a different area and help somebody or start something up for somebody. But we're still not there because we're still growing up with what we saw our parents do, grandparents do, and now we're looking at our kids going, oh, great, we're doing the same thing. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. I think that that awareness is the first step. I mean, we've got a generation of people who are raising kids now. I'm like, I don't want to just be in the middle of the stream. I don't want to continue, continue to do what we've always done because if we, do what we can, if we continue to do what we've always done, we're going to get where we've always gotten. And I think seeing that, having conversations with people, being willing to ask difficult questions of ourselves, like why am I not willing to get out into a community that I don't know? Because I know they need help, but you know, it's still about us individually. Um, and having those conversations with people, like the desire, the awareness, the understanding that we need to change is there. So I think at least that's the, the first step. And then I, I truly think that conversations, connecting, sharing our own honest truth is really important because if, I mean, I think, well, you just sharing what you shared was really important because the number of heads that I saw mm. nodding um, in agreement means that other people feel the same way. And that's the beginning of those conversations because you've put it out there. You've said that this is how we feel and someone over here is going, yeah, I agree. And you have a conversation about it. And then that forms connection. And then you start to, to meet other people. And that's what I meant before about 
community and like-minded people. I don't want to get, um, you know, a community of minimalists together to talk about minimalism. Like, it's just, it's a tool. It's just an empty space because they got rid of it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It'd be very boring. <laughs> but it's like, it's a tool. All of these things are a tool to create the kind of world we want to, we want to live. If, and I'm an idealist, I admit it, but... Um, I think that that's the benefit of it. It's not so that we can all live in pretty little Instagram squares. It's so that we can create a better world. And I think that the really interesting stuff, like the, the crossover with what you were saying about comfort zones comes unexpectedly when we start to dig into who we are and why we keep the stuff we keep and why we think the things we think. And it's only by putting air and light on those things that we can start to figure out, well, why do I think that? Why do I value my comfort over someone else's? And for me personally, that's affected um, the way that I eat, the things that I, like the places that I will buy, like I don't, I will shop secondhand, for example, now because the fashion industry is appalling and it's built on disempowering mostly women and kids in countries where they're not well represented legally. So that's a change that we can make. And then we have a conversation about it, you know. So I think, I mean, I could talk about it for hours, but I think that that's where I want to see these changes move towards mm. building a better world, as lofty as it sounds. When people are like, uh, I don't have time to change the world, <laughs> I can help you with that. It's so encouraging. One more yeah, sure. yeah, that'd be great. Oh, let's do two then. <laughs> um, what have been the most helpful boundaries that you've set for yourselves and for your kids around technology? Oh, good one. Um, so the most helpful boundary around tech has been screen-free bedrooms. Just to, that is just the, it's a physical boundary. Um, screens aren't allowed in the bedrooms, including our phones. So even though I use it as an alarm, it does not come into the bedroom, it's in another room. And that means that when I get up in the morning, um, first of all, I have to get out of bed to turn off my alarm, and then I don't get back in bed most days. Uh, but <laughs> it's also a good reminder to not dive headfirst into my emails at the beginning of the day, because what I used to do is roll over, turn off my alarm, like, oh, well, my, hand, my phone's in my hand now. What's been happening? Yeah. And I feel my head, I feel my my heart, I, you know, load up my shoulders with the news of the day before I've even got out of bed. And now keeping it out of, out of the bedroom, that's made a huge difference. And also having a 24-hour period without screens over the weekend. So midday, Sunday to midday, a uh, Saturday to midday, Sunday. Uh, and that just gives a reprieve to our brains. Mm. For me, it's going to happen very shortly where uh, when we finish the book tour, we're going to have a, a holiday, a break. And it's we're just shutting off everything. So a holiday being a holiday. And uh, we've taken the last month to communicate that to people. Is that <laughs> we are actually we, we really need it. <laughs> and you, you need to work that out. Um, so that, I'd love to see how that plays out. Like, and we'll talk about it on the, on the podcast. But I'm really, really interested to see what like, completely you know, shutting off our phones and, and laptops will be like for, mm. for two weeks. Yeah. Uh, my question, I struggle some, I've, I've listened to you guys a decent bit, I've read a lot of books, and I feel like I've made a lot of progress in my own life, but I struggle then with guilt, with finding a balance, like, I'm a stay-at-home mom, and so I'm the shopper of groceries, mm -hmm. of clothes for kids that are growing, of things we need, mm -hmm. so then if I want to buy a new shirt, I feel like a bad person for buying that shirt, or with technology, right. I found space and started a free forest school chapter which is exciting and awesome i love it it's been so great but it's based on facebook in right. terms of organization i'm mm. on facebook mm. and i'm like looking at facebook and 
So I struggle with where I find that middle ground that there are things that are not slow but are still part of our life. Right, and I think life isn't slow. Yeah. You know, that's the ultimate irony. Like people ask me, how do I do slow with small kids? Like, well, first of all, remove your expectations of what you think it should look like, mm. because kids aren't slow, and they're not minimalists, and they're not—they're <laughs> <laughs> not—they're um, not tidy. You know, they're not organised necessarily. They collect, they like, they they explore, they learn in that way. So, removing our expectations of what we think it should look like to live slow is a really good place to start. Because what I've discovered is that any time I have expectations of what it should look like, and it doesn't meet those expectations, anything, any change. I suffer. So I've realized that having expectations is actually setting ourselves up to suffer for it. So by removing that and just saying, what will, what will happen if, you know, and kind of approach these things with more of a playful, experimental sort of approach really helps. But also letting go of the guilt. So, so you know, what you think that slow, li slow living should look like is not being on Facebook at all, except that what you're using Facebook for is to do something that is fulfilling, is to do something that connects people, it's in service of a greater why. I mean, if you're looking for practical advice on that, I mean, create a dummy account. Don't have any friends. You can just use it to do those things that you need to be on Facebook for, but you don't need to look at the photos from someone's vacation that you went to high school with, you know? So there's things that you can do to kind of create the boundaries that you need. Um, and I think, but just letting go of, of, just let go of guilt. It doesn't, it doesn't help us, you know? You're allowed to buy the shirt, it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, and um, letting go of the expectations, I think. And I think sometimes journaling that, like jotting down what you've got in your mind it should look like, and then physically letting that piece of paper go could really help as well. Yeah. My husband just tears it off. Right. <laughs> right, well, that's good too. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. need sounding boards. We need people who we can bounce stuff off. Yeah. You're welcome. Right, well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.